Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, what's up, everyone? Producer Amari here. Before we get to the show, I want to remind you that our study group for the Fast AI course, a code-first introduction to natural language processing, begins this Saturday, December 14th. This course will cover NLP applications like topic modeling, classification, language modeling, and translation. To join the study group and the broader Twimmel online community, head over to twimmelai.com community. Submitting that form will trigger an invitation to our Slack. And once you're there, join the appropriate study group channel. Hope to see you online. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Stephen Meredy. Stephen is an NLP and deep learning researcher working on a startup. Uh, I'll let him mention that. Stephen's a longtime friend of the show and was a participant in our conversation back. When exactly was that? It was Twimble Talk 234, but that was all around the OpenAI GP2 release. And we had that great panel discussion about the controversy that surrounded it. But now Stephen's back for a standalone interview, uh, particularly on the topic of his recent paper, Single-Headed Attention RNN, Stop Thinking With Your Head. Stephen, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, to diving into this. But before we do, you didn't have an opportunity to give us a full background when we did that panel. So why don't you share a little bit about how you got to working in this area? Absolutely. Um, I was lucky to actually start working in natural language processing um, in late high school. Brilliant professor by the name of Dr. James Curran um, helps run a summer camp for high school kids. And uh, there he introduced not just programming, but also you know natural language processing. Um, and back in those days, well before uh, deep learning, it was far more of the traditional methods. Um, but I got obsessed with it from then. So basically, the second I was at university, I was interested in working in the field and published some interesting papers, uh, primarily on maximum entropy models and uh, on uh, combinatorial categorical grammar parsing, if uh, any of the readers, uh, viewers are aware. <laughs> um, but since then, yeah, it's uh, it's been a bit of a whirlwind. Um so uh, when I came over to the U.S., uh, I went to Harvard University for a master's, and there I was really obsessed with uh, large data sets, um, thinking that was the right way to kind of machine intelligence or artificial intelligence. Um, and since I left then, I worked at a um, nonprofit called Common Crawl, uh, who they basically download billions of pages from the internet every month to turn it into a data set. So think of it as your kind of own small version of uh, Google's data store. Um, then I worked at Metamind, which was eventually acquired by Salesforce and became Salesforce Research. And that was where I got most interested in language models. Um, and since then, I've left Salesforce Research uh, and started my own um, startup called DDX Times. And the idea with that is that um, I think that language models are amazing tools, um, just kind of new, new ways of, of handling a lot of the computation and um, linguistic tasks that we think of every day. And I'm really interested in kind of unlocking language as a data set, you know, beyond the kind of surface level um, work that we traditionally do. Uh, so the, the tagline of the company is, you know, language is humanity's longest running program. 
Um, and it's kind of accumulated all of this cruft and all of this information over time. And hopefully language models will be the way to start unpackaging that um, and helping humans actually look at millions of web pages or, you know, hundreds of years of documents without uh, having to read through it all themselves. Well, since language models will be playing such a prominent role in this discussion, maybe we should start from the top and uh, have you share for those that aren't familiar with the terminology, what a language model specifically is trying to do. Absolutely. So the kind of most likely uh, example of language models that everyone has probably run into is the auto suggest on your mobile phone. Um, so as you're typing, certain phrases are kind of highly likely. And instead of you um, hitting each of the keys on your mobile phone, it'll just pop up a word and suggest that instead. So that's kind of the example of language model that most people see. But it turns out if you keep scaling these language models up, if you use uh, you know, a far more powerful device than your phone, um, just trying to predict the next token, whether that is a character, a word, or a piece of a word, um, then the language model, uh, the, the machine learning model that you produce there ends up encapsulating a lot of kind of interesting um, pieces of knowledge about not just language, but kind of the um, structure and uses of language itself. Uh, so there have been amazing examples of um, just predicting the next character on uh, language modeling data sets. Um, one example is OpenAI's uh, sentiment neuron, where they, without giving the machine learning model any extra information, they gave it a number of Amazon movie reviews, uh, Amazon reviews, and they asked it to predict the next character. So imagine you're just sitting at the keyboard trying to guess the next character that someone is typing. That's all this machine learning model is doing. But from the knowledge that's distilled in that, it's able to accurately predict whether it's a positive or a negative uh, review. And in fact, when you're generating, you can basically ask the language model, continue generating as if it's a positive or a negative review. So if I was reviewing my headphones, I would say, well, make it positive. And like, the headphones have a beautiful sound, crisp and uh, very long battery life, da da da. But then you could flip it negative and the language model will say, you know, the, the, Headphones uh, have static and are constantly annoying, a slight ringing in my ears. So these language models, as you keep scaling them up, seem to be capturing more and more, at the very least, surface um, knowledge of text, let, uh, if not kind of deeper, interesting connections that you know humans might not be fully aware of. And so the this example you gave, and examples like a GPT-2 uh, and others where you're predicting paragraphs and paragraphs, it's all coming from this you know, fundamental ability to predict the next character. Uh, yes. And in those cases, it's usually the next token where that might be a word piece. So you might break a word down into, let's say, running, you know, uh, yeah, running because, you know, running um, or so on. Mm -hmm. But exactly that point is just predicting this next token. And you can, of course, make the task more complex. But it turns out even just providing a huge chunk of text without any additional information about, say, the domain of the text or um, you know, where the text come from, um, even the language of the text, you're able to start pulling out these interesting details. And so this, this paper that you just published, uh, the Shah RNN paper, tell us a little bit about the, the motivation for the paper. Yeah, there, there are two main motivations for the paper. One is that um, the language modeling field of late has primarily been... Um, dominated by just a single type of neural architecture. So a single type of um, machine learning model that's being created to kind of solve the problem. 
And as we've seen from both language modeling itself, but almost every other field in machine learning, there's usually many different ways to tackle a problem. Um, and just as one uh, technique has gotten a lot of uh, a lot of advantage in, in recent works, doesn't necessarily mean we should be focusing all of our time or all of our effort on that. Um, so what I did was rather than um, using the kind of dominant uh, neural architecture, which is called the transformer architecture, um, I used a, an older architecture called the LSTM, long short term memory. Many of your listeners probably would have heard of. Um, to get basically quite similar state-of-the-art results. Um, it's still not quite at state-of-the-art, but I also used far less resources, which was the second part. I really wanted a language model that was trainable by the majority of people um, because a lot of the more recent language models have required you know, tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of um, either cloud compute or equipment and so on. So it's, it's really asking the question of, you know, what would this field look like if we headed potentially a different direction in the past or saw different results and everyone pushed on a different direction? And also, are we sure that we can't achieve many of these results uh, with far less time, far less compute, which will mean that it's more available for more people, more researchers, more practitioners um, to actually use these results and try it on their own uh, data sets and tasks? Yeah, you mentioned uh, a couple of things which uh, I... I'll take a quick second to point folks to some references from here on the podcast. Uh, back in July, I did a show with Emma Struble, uh, who did a paper on the environmental impact of just the kind of uh, large scale language model training that you're referring to. Um, you know, as you mentioned, these models take tons of compute to train and, you know, that is all powered by energy and has a huge environmental impact. And she traced that down to, you know, the actual carbon load, you know, required to train some of these models and made some comparisons about them. So that is an interesting show for folks to check out. And then uh, we'll be talking a little bit about LSTMs. And uh, of course, the authority uh, on that is Jürgen Schmidhuber. Uh, and I did a show with him about the LSTM back in August of 2017, when we'll talk 44. But before we uh, talk specifically about the model you created uh, based on the LSTM, you know, walk us through the, the transformer architecture that folks are spending so much time on now. What, uh, you know, what is it doing? How does it work? Absolutely. So the transformer architecture takes a quite different um, look at how to do language modeling. Um, I might start with LSTMs or RNNs, recurrent neural networks. And the word there, recurrent, is that it takes a you know word at a time and kind of imagine you're reading left to right over a page. Well, transformers have a very different take on this. Uh, you get up to a current word, let's say I've just thrown a page in front of you, and I ask you to kind of... Uh, guess what the next word would be at the, the bottom of the page, your eyes might dart around to multiple different pace, places on the page. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, you, you might look at first maybe the general topic of the, the language without looking at many of the words individually or how they're composed. Uh, you might skirt around and look whether or not you see specific person's name. So the, the general idea behind transformers is that they actually use attention over uh, dozens or hundreds or thousands of the past kind of words or word pieces that you're looking at on the page. 
And each of these words end up kind of doing the exact same thing. They look at all the surrounding words as context using attention. So a lot of the time, the, the most important thing for attention is it'll just look at words that are local to itself. It'll look at the word previous to itself or the last few. But it might also um, focus on other most likely related concepts. So if uh, you saw the word, maybe a pet name on, uh, not pet name, a uh, animal species on the page, you might look for other animal species on the page or something else like that. So this isn't potentially the best example of uh, describing transformers. It's It's been a while since I've, I've had to try and think through it um, from kind of the ground up. Uh, but the idea is each word in the page would uh, perform attention to get context about itself and about the other words on the page, which also enables you to do some very interesting differences to traditional models. These models usually don't have any concept of, you know, what word is necessarily before or after it. It will usually learn that or have some amount of that knowledge injected. That also means you can extend it quite readily to tasks such as um, images where you might be talking about pixels looking around or also audio as well. So they're not kind of fundamentally sequential models like an RNN or LSTM. They're the the relationships with between the words are built up solely based on this attention mechanism. That's absolutely correct. Yeah, the, there's no sequentiality uh, necessarily forced on it. Um, you can add in a few kind of hints or um, ideas like that, but it suddenly doesn't have the same idea of sequentiality as like a recurrent neural network where you're kind of walking one word at a time. And because of that, uh, one of the main advantages is that you can parallelize a lot of this. Um, so rather than having to walk one word at a time when you're doing processing, transformers can usually perform um, all of these computations across these words in parallel as well. So there are certain advantages that's primarily during training, but there are certain advantages uh, about the way in which you can parallelize the work too, because you make less of this uh, constraint on kind of sequentiality. You kind of mentioned the the, the couple goals. Um, one was to kind of just take on the idea, uh, you know, of transformers a- and explore whether you could achieve similar goals with other types of models. Uh, you know, with that as kind of a starting uh, point of inspiration, how did you end up at a specific model, this uh, SHA RNN? In the past, uh, most of the language models were kind of fixed around either recurrent neural networks, but there are also some convolutional neural networks. So almost a similar approach as you would have for handling a vision task. But for me in particular, I, I appreciate and, and like the aspect of the LSTM. Um, I think it, it's more in line with how uh, at least I can I can visualize how I would read or think about um, reading text, um, and you know that's it's certainly nothing to do with how the human brain thinks or whatever else. But it's certainly at least an abstraction that I can think about and reason through. Um, as you're reading text, usually at least I don't know about you, but I usually go word to word, um, and I might glance back at a different part of the page. But I'm certainly not you know glancing around the page for every word that I'm looking at, um, and. So the LSTM or the RNN are far better fits for that. Uh, You have an interior kind of hidden state, uh, so some sort of uh, memory, and you're storing aspects of the current text that you're reading in that memory and using that to predict the next word. Um, And that, I feel, is, at least in in my mind, a kind of more intuitive fit for how I read. 
compared to, say, these multi-headed attention mechanisms used by transformers, where it's equivalent of for every word you look at on the page, glancing for some of these models hundreds of uh, times at different locations on the page to pull information back and forth. Um, and they don't generally have this concept of memory as well. Uh, some of the most recent Transformer page, uh, papers have added memory, but it's certainly nothing quite like the LSTMs at the moment, um, which I feel has kind of, as I said, a, a far better intuitive understanding of how we'd go through and reading text. You know, and talking about these two different types of models, you know, we're contrasting the attention mechanism uh, versus the sequentiality, but they're not necessarily mutually exclusive. In fact, you use attention as part of the SHA RNN and attention has been used in conjunction with RNNs for quite some time. Isn't that right? Yeah. And that was one of the aspects that I was particularly interested in, in actually researching as well. The question of how much of the most recent results for transformers are mostly results of these attention mechanisms themselves um, versus, you know, maybe what, what aspects are missing from previous models. Um, so transformers, they are entirely this multi-headed attention uh, concept um, versus LSTMs in the past have generally mostly just being the LSTM and only added maybe a, a layer of attention here or there very sparsely. Um, but the research seemed to have stopped um, in probably 2017, 18 um, on extending LSTMs this direction. So rather than adding attention heads to these existing RNN models, it was uh, kind of literally the, the paper that started a lot of this was called Attention is All You Need, um, which gave kind of rise to this transformer approach. And people have seemed to, to stick pretty close to the, the paper's title, um, using almost purely attention for a lot of these tasks. So before uh, Transformers took off um, two or three years ago now, I was also exploring using um, a, a very simple form of attention um, on top of these RNN models. Uh, and it was referred to as the pointer sentinel um, model. And the idea is it was that it would allow your LSTM, which is mainly just looking at words one at a time, to look back with like one pass over the page to try and pull some information back. So the kind of intuitive idea was imagine that um, I give you a highlighter and you're allowed to highlight some of the words on the page that you think are relevant to predicting the next word. Um, and that had incredibly good results, but it wasn't kind of properly integrated in the model. It was mainly about pulling in kind of rare words that the model might not understand from um, a kind of uh, information point of view, but it might understand from a positional point of view. Um, so my last name might be a good example of that. Maybe the model has never seen Stephen Meredy, but with an attention mechanism, you highlight just Meredy and say, well, just pull that word, copy and paste it here. So that was the idea initially behind um, my point of Sentinel. And that was based off of a lot of work on point networks, um, which were kind of precursors to these uh, transformers or multi-headed attention. But allowing the um, RNN itself to actually use that to update its, its kind of internal repository of knowledge, to update its, its internal memory, wasn't heavily used beforehand. Um, and so that was, that was the direction that I was interested in taking it and also asking well, these transform models have had great success with these, you know, dozens or hundreds of heads. Um, how 
how much, how many heads do you actually need for doing this work and how complex do they need to be? Is it enough to kind of literally just do one highlight of the page or do you require, you know, 20, 100 different colors for your highlighter and different uh, levels of granularity? Um, and the, the most surprising result for me is that a single head of attention, so allowing the model to kind of glance back at the page once is enough to get near state-of-the-art results um, when you kind of combine it with an LSTM. And now, is there a kind of measure of the complexity of the LSTM network, like the number of time steps or something like that, that is relevant here to get a sense for, well, complexity? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there are a few different directions we could look at. Um, And that was also one of the ones that I was interested in thinking about a lot of the time, these larger models aren't actually kind of sensible to put into production. They either make a, a great deal of references or they require a, a great deal of memory for keeping you know, those references in memory or a great deal of compu- uh, like flops, floating point operations. So basically, you know, uh, the certain amount of compute for your um, GPU. And yeah, part of, part of the idea was that because I'm using only a single head of attention, and it's a far simpler one, that's the uh, reference to stop thinking with your head, Uh, I'm actually able to add in far more um, tokens into this, the the past uh, reference kind of memory window. So the the size of the page, if you you wanna think of it that way, that you're able to look back over the text. Um, But also that LSTMs, because it's just got this one time step, um, when you're generating, you're interested in just producing one time step. Mm -hmm. And an LSTM by itself, you have a very small amount of computation you need to do versus a transformer. As we mentioned, transformers, at least so far, don't have any aspect of this memory. So every word that they look at, you have to do this full computation over again and look back all the way back over the page doing a great deal of compute usually. Is that at both training and inference? Yes, basically. And it also gets particularly interesting when it comes to inference because a lot of the parallelization advantages that you had earlier on uh, for training kind of disappear. During training, you, you already have all of the text kind of, you, you can cheat and imagine that you were able to predict the next word because you've got this written down text exactly as it is. So it's the equivalent of, I guess, you or me like reading over a, a, an existing you know, paper or article versus when you're generating, you obviously can't kind of glance forward to what you would have written five or 10 um, you know, sentences ahead. And so the model has to step very slowly, one step after the other, even when you have a kind of parallel model as you do with the the transformer. Uh, And so the model, you're able to train it on just a single GPU. Yeah. So all of this lived on um, a single GPU. Uh, Thanks to NVIDIA, they (laughs) donated to me some time ago. But yes, a single GPU and almost all the experiments were under 24 hours. Um, So there's this been this huge push towards you know, cloud compute and everything else like that, which, you know, there's absolutely no problem with, but they're certainly generally not cost effective. And I, I generally want my research to be replicable by, you know, say a grad student or, you know, a freshman or just someone who's interested and maybe just has the GPU in their gaming laptop. Um, I think that, I think there are so many interesting different potential directions for research that it's a shame to limit the field to people who have, you know, huge amounts of compute or some way of getting free credits um, on these cloud services. 
I've certainly been offered enough of them. You know, there, there are many companies that offer these credits to try to encourage people to play around and they'll usually give it to researchers or universities or so on. But at the end of the day, if, if not everyone has access to those same kind of free credits and free resources, then we're limiting the field uh, and limiting the breadth of people who can contribute. So you created this model based on attention and an LSTM, and then you ran it against uh, a benchmark in this case uh, with the NWIC 8 Hutter Prize Wikipedia data set. And you found reasonable performance with that. Uh, tell us a little bit about the approach to benchmarking you took here. So the NWIC 8 data set, it's also referred to as the Hutter Wikipedia Prize. And the idea was that it's just grabbing a partial dump of uh, Wikipedia. So that's the first 100 million bytes or so of uh, English Wikipedia from uh, its many years back now. I think it was 2006. Uh, and this is kind of an interesting data set for a number of reasons. One is that it's traditionally been used for traditional compression. So if you think of zip files or that type of thing, this was the data set that was frequently used to show whether or not a new compression technique was better than than past ones. So it has been um, kind of heavily thought through by a number of different people in terms of traditional data compression. And one of the fascinating things about language models is that they are actually also data compressors. They're certainly not used generally to actually compress files that we might deal with every day. But by being able to better predict the next token, it actually means you're able to spend less and less bits uh, storing the data set itself. And this has been considered a potential demonstration of kind of the idea that compression and machine learning and artificial intelligence kind of all kind of wrap up into one thing. Because compression at the end of the day is being able to produce a larger sequence from a smaller sequence because you have some knowledge about the structure of how the data goes together. And in the exact same way, if you have structure about uh, knowledge about, the, say, the structure of a given language that you're talking in, let's say it's English, or the structure of XML, which is also part of this data dump, you're able to better predict the next token, which means you're better to, uh, able to better compress the file. So this is a really interesting data set in my mind. And it, it also, of course, runs over Wikipedia, which has already a great kind of collection of all of the world's uh, information in it. So that was, that was the data set that I was interested in exploring. And yes, it's been one of these standard data sets uh, to explore for uh, language models for quite some time. And it turns out with this relatively simple architecture that kind of jumps off in a different direction, my SHA LSTM, I was able to achieve results that would have been state of the art a year or two ago, unfortunately, but in uh, able to achieve these results in 12 to maybe 20 hours, depending on your GPU or depending on the exact formulation of the model. Uh, so far faster than um, a lot of these kind of larger models and almost with a minimal size as well. So does the result and performance that you've seen in the benchmarking generalize to other types of tasks? Uh, for example, um, many might be familiar with these transformer models and language models like GPT-2 through just a text prediction type of a task where you give it a prompt and you, you know, have it generate some number of words. And to expand on that, you know, often, you know, we're surprised at how coherent that text reads. 
Uh, would you expect that this model performs similarly on that type of task and generate text that, uh, you know, feel so kind of spookily human? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's one admittedly I don't have uh, direct evidence for yet, but at least for this model um, and this data set, when you compare it against the other models, which are all transformer-based almost, the numbers are quite similar. And when I'm looking at the output, it's quite similar. The difference would be in scaling. So many of these existing transformer models have run over far larger data sets. The NWIC8 data set is only, unfortunately, about 100 megabytes of Wikipedia. Um, so far smaller than many of these models that are now training over you know, dozens, hundreds of gigabytes of uh, quite varied text. So the model that I, I use, it suddenly produces some fun and hilarious and interesting uh, Wikipedia pages. Uh, in fact, I love using it to get the kind of reception, like the New York Times writer said that this article was the most terrible idea in all of existence. Usually this model ends up with beautiful pithy quotes. But unfortunately, because it's mainly focused on the Wikipedia domain, it isn't as expressive as a lot of these larger models trained over far more varied texts. Now, that isn't an issue with the model itself. That's an issue with the data set that I have. And the fact that I was mainly trying to, to get it to run quite quickly. But I don't think there is necessarily a limit or going to be an extreme difference in how this model would um, perform for a lot of these kind of text completion tasks. But you would have to scale it up. And one of the other main centerpieces of the, the article, uh, the paper that I was talking about, is the fact that because there was so much attention on uh, performance uh, on transformers for the past few years, no pun it's intended. Those models, no pun intended. <laughs> it's those um, models that ended up getting a lot of the focus when it comes to both the research, but also the practical engineering behind how to make these models scale. There are indeed certain advantages that just make it far easier to scale um, transformers. But there are also many known techniques to making other um, neural networks uh, formulations faster, such as the LSTM, that we haven't actually pursued because we've all gone off in this uh, transformer direction. And I feel like that's a bit of a, a shame because as more people spend more time working on a very particular brand or a particular style of solution to a task, these other solutions, which might not actually be worse, kind of fall to the side. And so, that's that's really part of what I was interested in kind of pointing out with this research, um, that up until kind of fairly recently, these results would have been state-of-the-art. And maybe people have been focusing more on how do you optimize an LSTM or how do we um, improve the, the way in we can perform or how do we scale it up? But that kind of tension instead went to transformers. When I've played with models like GPT-2 in the past, it becomes very clear very quickly that the model you know it's not creating new texts it's kind of stitching together things that it has memorized and or seen in the past and these transformer models you know because they're huge models they have a huge parameter space and they can memorize a lot of stuff so does a smaller model you, you've talked about scaling it up can it scale up in the same way to, so that it can remember as much stuff? Yeah, the the concept of scaling up the model, I guess you can go, go in two different directions. One is you can scale up a small model to handle a larger data set, or you can, of course, scale up the kind of model architecture 
from this smaller model to a larger one and also at the same time throw in more data. I guess let's let's pull that apart. So one is scaling up a small model to a larger data set. There is going to be a limit on how well, at least in the, the kind of traditional ways that language models operate, a small model will work. Um, there's just you know some limit. It's not going to be able to perfectly memorize all of Harry Potter if you um, or, or you know all of these different books if you're feeding them in, just because there's a, a finite amount of space, a finite number of parameters that this um, language model is able to to use. But that's also kind of a different question compared to can a small model be able to coherently generate text? Maybe especially if you gave it, um, you know, the uh, first few pages of Harry Potter to thumb through. Because we wouldn't call someone unintelligent if, say, I, know, I gave um, the first few pages of Harry Potter to my friend who had never read the book and say, try and continue writing along. If they don't make a reference to Snape, that's a very different kind of problem than them not being able to actually coherently generate text. So we are kind of conflating two aspects of language models. How much can the language model memorize from the world around it? You know, how much of the text that's been written um, or topics in the world can it kind of cram into its memory? And that's usually the form of parameters. That's where the, a lot of these models scale. And the secondary question of, well, can it coherently generate text? You know, how much of it is actually um, some level of understanding of the structure of text or how text might work and how much of it is actually just kind of, as you said, reproducing what it's already read, what it's already kind of memorized. Um, and I'm personally, hopefully, not convinced that uh, we have to keep scaling these models up. You know, as a human being, if I, you know, gave my friend that task of completing some Harry Potter fan fiction and they'd never read the books before, maybe I could point them to the Harry Potter Wikipedia page and maybe that would be enough. Um, maybe they want to thumb through a Wikipedia that's specific to Harry Potter. Maybe they need to read through the book, but I suddenly wouldn't have to, you know, get them an extra chunk of uh, brain just in order to, to handle that type of task. And so that's the other kind of question and hope in my work. Maybe we're scaling up in the direction of being able to memorize more and more of this data far too early compared to, you know, having these models potentially be able to refer to, to new data when it needs to, um, and thus be able to generalize better. So yeah, I, I do think that there are two quite different questions, um, which isn't to say that they also don't interoperate and interact as well. Because one of the, the fascinating things about text is that it's really, if you think of like memorizing results, humans have spent a lot of time generating the text. And usually text is this beautifully distilled, um, condensed kind of form of knowledge. And so there is obviously a lot of benefit to that. And there, there, there are obviously ways in which that can help a model train. But, you know, how much of that is necessary? Or maybe a, a completely different question is, do we think that these models can generate something that it hasn't read about before? Because that is potentially, you know, there are two different directions we can think about with language models. One is kind of minimizing the complexity of, of these data sets. The idea that I'll never be able to read all of the internet or all of Wikipedia, but hopefully I don't necessarily need to to get to the, the result or to the information that is interesting or useful for my task. But then the second one is, well, if you want it to generate something, as we've been using with you know, GPT-2 and Transformer Excel and a lot of these um, language models, if we want to get it to generate something that's actually quite intelligent is it enough to be able to kind of copy together 
other pieces of knowledge from the past? And I don't know. It's, a, it's an interesting kind of very open question. Cool. There's a, a section of the paper where you go into a discussion around tokenization attacks uh, and, and that kind of thing. What was that bit all about? Yeah, so I'll admit this is a section where I'm I'm still having to rethink uh, a lot of lot of what I, I'm pondering. Um, but <laughs> what what one of the the questions is that I, I published the one of the the standard data sets for this task called Wikitext 103. And generally, uh, when you're you're trying to determine whether or not a language model uh, is performing well or not, you have a specific data set and you get it to try and predict an unknown. Uh, like a test section, a section that hasn't seen before. And you ask, how confused were you by, say, you know, all of these words in succession? And tokenization is the idea that you can break these up into kind of different components. You might be able to, say, just split on spaces and you would consider those words. So running, ran, and so forth end up all being separate. But the other concept is you could break it up into parts of words. Um, so the example I have is specialized because you have special, you have specialized, specialized. If you break it up into those three different chunks, you can say, well, okay, the word special means this type of thing. When I add the suffix eyes, you know, I specialize in a field or I specialized adding the D, um, the additional suffix on top of that. You can see you break the word up into these components where even if you don't necessarily understand all of one part, you can better understand other pieces. So, that was part of the idea behind the tokenization attack, whether it was actually fair for these different models to compare um, their numbers by breaking up across these different tokens. Um, turns out, I think it actually is. Uh, I've been turned smarter people than me have pointed out many of the issues in my thinking. But there's also still a, an issue when it comes to generating text. So if you've seen from GPT-2 or if you've been playing around with that or these other uh, online models, most of the time, these models are being trained with what we would consider gold text. So text that we would hopefully have pulled from a, an intelligent source so it actually makes sense. And if the language model, say, guesses the wrong word next, it can recover because you're telling it, well, actually, no, that word was wrong. You actually meant to say this. But if you've played around with these models and you've had it start to generate something incorrect, it'll usually start, say, getting into this weird loop or start to repeat the wrong fact over and over and over again, because it says, well, okay, I've seen that text generated. I assume that everything before it was correct, and I'm not going to go back and fix it. So the different sizes of these text chunks can also impact that when it comes to generation. But yeah, the, the tokenization attack, I, I've got to admit, is, is less of a well-formed argument, as it turns out. <laughs> It did kind of feel a little bit like you were geeking out and having fun uh, after the real work of the paper was done. Uh, I, I, certainly, yeah, it, was, it was less well-formed than the rest of the paper, so I'll have to admit that much, yes. You know, is your hope that folks will build on the SHAR RNN or, you know, put it into production, put it into actual use? Like, what do you, you know, what's your ultimate hope for this work and where do you see it going? Yeah, I've had people already contact me about pushing something like it into production because there are, there are a number of advantages, especially for production usage or for if you're running small models. There, there are some advantages to it that you don't get out of the transformer. But honestly, my, my main hope is for us as a field to kind of think through these two different directions that we're going. Um, one is that 
where we have something that works. We have language models and they seem to work well. Turns out scaling them up, they generally seem to work better. But as we scale them up, we are kind of locking ourselves into two different things where we're focusing all of our research on this one specific formulation of how to solve the task, which we don't know is necessarily correct yet. And we're locking in a lot of our engineering effort into solving the task using that particular formulation, which means that it's more and more difficult for different potential approaches to actually even get a start. You know, the model's slower or it's just not able to be scaled because the frameworks aren't there and so on. And I, I, I am hoping that the community kind of really, really thinks about that because if we kind of followed this example, uh, I'm not sure if your readers are aware, but like one of the first deep learning examples was uh, the, the cat example that Google did in, um, I think it was 2012, uh, where they used, it was along the lines of 16,000 CPU cores uh, to kind of look at small images in order to better classify a number of small classes amongst them, whether or not a cat was in the image. And that kind of sounds crazy now because you can do that on your mobile phone. But that was because we also went a different direction and we realized GPUs were better for kind of solving this type of task. And we've improved the architecture and so on over time. But imagine kind of a different history where we instead focus just on using CPUs like this. You know, the maybe the only people who'd be able to do machine learning at this point were, you know, the Googles or the Microsofts or what have you that have these 16,000 CPUs hanging about. And so the more we like focus on a particular direction and forget about the fact that, you know, these models are becoming larger and larger and more unwieldy to train and that there are potentially other more efficient ways to solve the problem. Well, we might find ourselves locked into a future where only a handful of like large organizations are able to do this research. And the worst part would be it's, we'd be locked in this future, not because it's the only way forward, but because it's just the way forward that we've, we've all pushed. Um, so that's really my, my hope for this paper. But additionally, if people use the, the model itself, I'll be I'll be glad to. Uh, so, kind of put another way, your general sense is that we've kind of over-indexed on exploit in this particular case, and you're kind of encouraging us to explore more. Yeah, there's more there to to try. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Yes, we're, we've exploited um, a great deal, and that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best solution to the task. And the, the worrying part is, you know, the more we exploit in one direction, the more it seems that all other paths are useless. But that's not necessarily because they're useless, but it's because of the amount of effort put into just, you know, making this one design work. For folks that want to play around with this, you've got code available on GitHub. Is that right? Indeed, there's code available on GitHub. It isn't the most beautiful code, um, but I am also going to be rewriting it some point soon with a particular focus on using it in production and using it for a number of different tasks. Because uh, the code base as it stands is really my research code base where you know you have a number of different options and you're, you're poking and prodding and trying things out um, and certainly haven't optimized it for speed, um, even though it's you know able to train in only 12 or 20 hours on a GPU. But yes, there's code available. If anyone's interested in playing around with it, uh, as a few have already started doing, please do so and I'll help as much as I can. But yeah, the code is available, so get to playing. Yeah, and I, I just pulled up the, the GitHub page uh, and noticed that uh, one of the 
kind of assumptions slash assertions that I made earlier was that this model would have fewer parameters than the transformers. And at least in the case of the ones that you've mentioned in the table, that's not necessarily uh, the case. Yeah, the number on that readme page is actually a little higher than it actually is. Uh, in the paper, 53 million parameters versus, I think it's 41. Um, and yes, I mentioned that in the paper as well. Uh, there are a few different directions uh, for that. One is that um, LSTMs, they generally need to have a fairly large hidden state in order to kind of retain memory. Uh, if your readers are aware of how it works, the, the recurrence uh, the kind of forget gates means that it kind of continues left to right. I, I won't go into too much detail about that. But yeah, the, the exact, in terms of uh, competing purely on parameters, um, there are models that are slightly better, and that's really quite reasonable. I also don't think I mentioned the adaptive transformer, which does a fair degree better as well. Mm -hmm. But this is more of a proof of concept paper. It's possible that you could kind of trim the shot LSTM down to try to to catch these as well. But that's also then a question of, you know, do these necessarily train faster? Do they use less compute when it comes to prediction time too? So it's really a bit of a, a trade-off on a number of different directions. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess the biggest thing that jumped out to me is that my intuition that the reason why transformers, you know, these large-scale transformers were better at kind of pulling all these texts out is because they had more parameters, but that's not necessarily the case. No, the, the multi-headed tension, like that's the other thing that this paper is not saying at all. It's not saying that my method is better. It's just kind of asking like, you know, how many attention heads are, are important? Uh, how do these necessarily work? Because, you know, I could have well and truly found that, you know, attention heads were the only thing that was necessary for this, but that didn't end up being the case. Mm -hmm. But one of the interesting things about these transform models is you, if you see those results, um, the LSTM is only four layers deep. So... There are four LSTMs that you kind of pass the information through versus these transform models. The two that we were talking about that have lower parameter counts, they have 12 layers each. So mm -hmm. you can also either reuse parameters or perform a great deal more computation to potentially get similar results by kind of maybe doing the same task, you know, a few times in a slightly more intelligent way. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, the comparison with that would be either certain compression algorithms, you know, the more time you spend compressing, the smaller the file size. So there are kind of these intuitive ideas as well. So it's, yeah, it's possible that by doing a far deeper model um, that requires more compute, we'd be able to get better results. Uh, but that's all, that's all kind of open research questions. Yeah. Were you surprised by the reception to it or was it in line with what you thought? Um, I mean, honestly, the reception has been a bit more than I was expecting. Uh, the other issue which is, is interesting is, you know, you probably noticed in the paper, I, I was just having fun with it. Um, oh, I mean, man. It's, <laughs> obvious, it's, it's a real research paper. But, like, yeah. there's, there's this whole secondary discussion. Some people have gotten very angry talking about the scientific voice um, and whether or not I was breaking it. The paper is... Uh, how do you put it? Quite literary <laughs> and and fun and lighthearted. It doesn't take itself seriously, and you know that makes it, uh, I think, rather accessible and 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 interesting. But it sounds like others, you're getting some flack for that. I mean, it, yeah, it suddenly ended up being a polarizing thing. Um, and you know, in in, in retrospect, it, I, I do think I've suddenly gone too far in some directions. And the, the main one, the main point I, I really wish I had done better was it 
is less accessible to non-English speakers. Um, and that's something that I in no way ever wanted to, to have happen. Mm. And, and so that's the main thing I've suddenly decided on. Um, I want to make it far more accessible, which, you know, that might just be additional material, um, very simplified explanations. As some papers have like blog posts that really distill everything out or work through examples one step at a time. But yeah, there, there are kind of two other directions that I was thinking about this from. One is that I'm now an independent researcher. I don't have these large companies backing me. And papers are really intensive things. And my natural writing style, the way in which I enjoy writing is, you know, along the lines of in the paper. Um, some directions, as I said, have gone too far, but other directions people have really enjoyed. And it kind of provided me a lot of a lot of room to think about what I was writing, why I'm doing language modeling, like what it means to me and and so on. But the other direction as well is that I think in in this professionalized setting, a lot of I, I have this entire kind of section in there where I talk about how you'd have to present what I was writing in order for it to be kind of accepted at conferences. Whilst whilst I, I have gone too far, I think it's also worth it for the academic community to really reflect on what they're expecting and what they're enforcing when it comes to papers. Mm -hmm. um, one friend said I should, you know, and rightly so, you should be dispassionate when it comes to the scientific voice. Um, you shouldn't put your opinion into it. But just because it isn't obvious on the surface that the given paper has an opinion doesn't mean that it that there is no bias within that paper. And whether that's the the papers it compares against the the approaches it tries, the results it does or doesn't show. I, I think this is this is something that the field should actually think about. And you know, uh, a friend of mine said maybe I'm not the right person to to think about that or do it. But I don't think that science has to have a a singular voice. And I don't know. I the main thing as well is that you know, as I said, I'm an independent researcher. I enjoyed writing it. That's probably the best way for me to, to produce more content. So if the, if, <laughs> if you want more content, that's kind of the, the way that I enjoy <laughs> writing myself. Right. Um, and, you know, writing pages of text and getting these results is no easy affair. So anyway, that, that's part of the battle. As I said, I, I've still, I'm still really just thinking through it myself. Um, the next paper, I will, I'll try simultaneously turning it down within the main section of the text but maybe I'll do something ridiculous, like put all the all of my fun asides in footnotes or into uh -huh. the appendix or something else like that. Maybe maybe you need to train a language model on a bunch of boring archive papers and then run your paper through it or something like that to, to turn it into academic speak. <laughs> yes, the, the, the removal of all the <laughs> random bits and pieces. Yeah. Maybe all, all the optional, uh, you know, show the hidden text and sections explode and fill out with all the, the <laughs> ridiculous expansions. Yeah. Right. Right. And yeah, I hadn't seen that uh, that aspect of the the response to it. Um, that's another corner of scientific Twitter, I guess. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting. It kind of split depending on community lines. Um, Reddit was the one that was most kind of. 50-50 when it came to that. Um, Hacker News had a little bit of a, a discussion on it, but it wasn't that heavy. Um, and Twitter was, you know, mostly support. The other thing is it's also private channels as well. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, there are some some friends of mine who didn't want to, you know, say it publicly. 
um, just because they, they, they considered this a, a mistake I made and that they just didn't want to, they, they as long as I, you know, don't do it again sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, as I said, I'm, I'm thinking through it all a, a great deal. Um, you know, maybe, maybe I just need to separate out everything and, and keep the papers boring, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still thinking through all of yeah. that. Well, that would be a great loss, but you know, I certainly, you know, there are certainly, as you've mentioned, aspects of the argument that resonate in terms of accessibility, you know, to folks that are less familiar with the particular idioms and things like that you're using. I mean, at the same time, it's, it's, it's opening up to a broader, like, as you said, it's opening up to a broader audience. I had like, um, you know, venture capitalists or um, students that I helped teach in Australia who are still high school students or someone being able, being able to read the paper mm -hmm. and get the vast majority of, of the content, um, you know, uh, and then at the same time, a lot of these papers, if we're talking about reproducibility or understandability, um, you know, I've included my code and people have already reproduced it. A lot of the more complex uh, works I've spent like there was one paper that I spent almost a year trying to replicate. It was some of the worst, mm. worst chunks of my life because this paper was doing better on a task that I was really trying to, to solve. Um, it was a language modeling paper. I ended up wasting so much time, so much compute, so much energy. And that was because the authors, even though it was a professionally written and well-received and published paper, the authors didn't include all the details to reproduce the work. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of what I mean by like uh, a, a lot of this is kind of, you know, as I said, my paper is not necessarily the right balance of it, but there, there's this reality behind the papers that is just papered over. Yeah. Um, no pun intended, but like there, there's this false reality that says like, you know, Oh, we only tried this thing. It's actually, you know, you tried 10 different things and you only reported on that. Or right, right. Um, we don't quite know how this works, but we're going to pretend we do for the sake of, like we're worried about reviewer number two saying that this is the obviously don't understand how it works and it's not the right you know approach or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so at the very least, you know, I think my paper makes it obvious that writing styles are thought about and enforced, but maybe they're not thought about and enforced as 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 publicly as as we might might need to think about them. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, for a paper whose one of whose primary goals is to ask questions of the research community. Um, you know, it strikes me as totally appropriate that it, you know, ask those questions in a way that itself asks questions. Right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I think that's the other thing I wanted the opportunity when you, when you're talking about the community as a whole, like I, I can't decide on the direction of the community and I can't necessarily there, there are certain things that you can't scientifically prove one way or the other. Um, like I can't say that we took the wrong direction by focusing on transformers. I can just ask the question. Um, but maybe there's the right way to do that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know that it's a right or a wrong thing. It's, you know, it's kind of what we've done. And I think, you know, you, you're touching on that. It's not the only way. And I, I would hope people would get that. Mm-hmm whether they can get those other ways funded at this point, because everything is so focused <laughs> on transformers, that's a whole other question. Uh, but yeah. maybe, maybe you've given someone a data point that, you know, that says that, you know, their thing should be funded. 
Yeah, it, it, that's the other, I mean, the one of the other focuses as well, like training language models quickly, um, my past code base, AWD LSTM, uh, because it was so quick to train, similar times, it was like 12 hours for many of these different data sets. You know, experimenters were able to, say, do it in like dozens or hundreds of languages or dozens or hundreds of variants um, versus these large language models. I know friends who they, they set off the training job and even with, you know, the 50 or $100,000 spent on some cloud compute thing, they're waiting one, two, three, four months in order for to get just one result. I, 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 that's the other thing as well. Not just being an independent researcher, but even when I was a researcher who was funded, I, I don't like the idea that the, that the research in the community is just becoming more and more predicated on you having access to all of this equipment. Mm-hmm. I think there are fascinating questions that, you know, your listeners or even like the high school students I teach in Australia, anyone else would be able to ask and actually answer in a completely scientific and fascinating way. Mm-hmm. But only if we keep making sure that these models are actually, you know, trainable, approachable, applicable to the normal person. And a lot of these pre-trained um, language models that we've been getting recently, where the training, uh, for example, GPT-2, um, the Salesforce researchers um, language model as well, um, many of these these different approaches, they're no longer releasing the training code for it. So you get these huge model blobs, um, you know, GP2, GPT-2 XL or what have you, but no one's necessarily able to reproduce it. So any research that's on top of that is predicated on either that company or those research organizations continuing to release those results, uh, those models, or again, on the idea that you don't have control of the underlying architecture, like you can't decide whether it's a transformer or an LSTM or whatever else. You have to live with whatever else is put out in front of you. Um, and I don't know, it just, I, 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 I'm ready to admit one day that, you know, we have to like focus on one direction or, you know, the compute resources do indeed get this better result and, you know, we can't try all these different things, but I don't think that day is yet. And I don't think that day is necessarily soon. Uh, well, thanks so much for taking the time to share what you're up to and uh, talk through this paper. Really interesting stuff. And I am really looking forward to seeing what the community does and, and what you do to kind of extend it. Thanks, Sam. All right, everyone, that is our show for today. For more information on today's show, including our guest, head to tomalei.com slash shows. Once again, the Code First Introduction to NLP Study Group begins this Saturday, December 14th. Head to tomalei.com slash community to get signed up now. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.